Scripture this morning comes from Deuteronomy chapter 1, verses 6 to 18. The Lord our God said to us in Horeb, You have stayed long enough at this mountain. Turn and take your journey, and go to the hill country of the Amorites, and to all their neighbors in Arabah, in the hill country, and in the lowland, and in the Negev, and by the seacoast, the land of the Canaanites, and Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. See, I have set the land before you. Go in and take possession of the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give to them and to their offspring after them. At that time, I said to you, I am not able to bear you by myself. The Lord your God has multiplied you, and behold, you are today as numerous as the stars of heaven. May the Lord, the God of our fathers, make you a thousand times as many as you are and bless you as he has promised you. How can I bear by myself the weight and burden of you and your strife? Choose for your tribes wise, understanding, and experienced men, and I will appoint them as your heads. And you answered me, the thing that you have spoken is good for us to do. So I took the heads of your tribes, wise and experienced men, and set them as heads over you, commanders of thousands, commanders of hundreds, commanders of fifties, commanders of tens, and officers throughout your tribes. And I charged your judges at that time, hear the cases between your brothers, and judge righteously between a man and his brother, or the alien who is with him. You shall not be partial in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike. You shall hear, you shall not be intimidated by anyone, for the judgment is God's. And the case that is too hard for you, you shall bring to me, and I will hear it. And I commanded you at that time all the things that you should do. God's word for us. How many of you, my friends, love history? Do I have some history lovers? Oh, that wonderful. That was very, Henry, I like that. Yes. How many of you would rather study anything but history? Josh. <laughs> I'm ashamed of you. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm not here to alter your classroom preferences, guys. Okay, you can guess my own, perhaps. But, but think about this. If you are a Christian, okay, if, if you're a follower of Jesus, well then, for you, history is a delightful necessity. Delightful necessity. For you, history matters. Why, why do I say that? Think about this. What's the gospel? What's the gospel? Okay, it's it's the good news of the person and work of Jesus Christ and all that God is doing through Christ in history, right? To rescue and redeem mankind. Or, Or what's what's the Old Testament? 
the whole first half of the Bible. It's, it's the history, right, of God's dealings with his people given to inform and guide our own relationship with him. Listen to Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 10, 11. Now these things, speaking of Israel's history, happened to them as an example. But they were written down for our instruction. On whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. What what is Paul saying? That, That there's... In a spiritual sense, there's nothing new under the sun, right? So so the mistakes God's people made in the past are what? The mistakes God's people are making today, right? Nothing new under the sun. And yet, please hear this, history does significantly more than help us avoid or not repeat the sins and mistakes of men. Plenty of non-Christians would give history that acknowledgement. But but here's where we part ways with the world. Because we know that history doesn't just do that. It confronts us with the character and ways of God. With whom, as James says, there is no, no variation or shadow due to change. Biblical history in particular. It shouts of the faithfulness of God, friends. Again and again, that that he's sovereign, that he's loving, that he's wise. And because he's all those things, he's worthy of your trust. He's worthy of your obedience. And the book of Deuteronomy that we just began studying last Sunday is is part of that history. Okay, Not, Not just for us, but for the original recipients, the original listeners of this book. It, it consists primarily of three sermons that Moses preached to the Israelites in the 14th century B.C. And to give you a quick review, if you weren't with us last week, the first generation of Israelites whom the Lord delivered out of slavery in Egypt is pretty much gone at this moment. Deuteronomy 1.6. They've died in the wilderness. And the second generation is, is all gathered around Moses, a few million people, as Numbers reveals, poised to enter the promised land. And at that moment, as Moses begins preaching, first of these three sermons, Israel faces a really critical decision. It's a big one, okay? Will they obey God's word, enter the land, remain faithful to the Lord, and receive the blessings he's promised? Or will they fail to do all of those things just like their forefathers? That's the decision. And and you can can feel the spiritual tension here as as Moses begins to preach. So that's that's the tension. That's the, the moment of decision. And so what does Moses do at the very beginning of the first sermon? This is instructive for us. He goes historical. You realize that? He devotes the first three chapters to the history of God's relationship with Israel. Why, why would he do that? Well, I don't know what else to say to all these crazy people, so let's just start with that. I like history. No. No, there's a divinely intended effect behind that. Moses knows something that was true back then and is still true today. 
Here's what it is. That God's faithfulness to his people in the past empowers or or compels our obedient trust in the present. That's why he goes historical, because he knows God's faithfulness in the past empowers obedient trust in the present. History is a delightful necessity because it confronts us, Kingsway, with the faithfulness of God. And it compels us to obey and trust him accordingly. So the the lessons that Israel needed to learn at this moment, this decision point in their story are the very same lessons we need to remember in our own story. So what are the lessons here? Here's the first one. Experiencing the fulfillment of God's promises requires obedient trust. Experiencing the coming to pass of God's promises requires obedient trust. Moses begins in verse 6, look there, by rewinding, to a moment 38 years earlier. So at that point, Israel's, they've been encamped around a, a mountain called Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai for the better part of two years. And the Lord did some amazing things at that mountain. He, he revealed his glory to his people. He made a covenant with them. He gave them the gifts of the law. He, he manifested his presence in their midst. He actually directed Moses to create a tent just for him called the tabernacle that was in the very middle of their camp. And then after two years or so, he said to Moses, verse six, you have stayed long enough at this mountain. Turn and take your journey and go to the hill country of the Amorites. Notice he doesn't say, Moses, just move on and settle somewhere else. Or I don't care where you go. Just leave Sinai. No, the Lord gave them detailed geographic markers for exactly where he wanted them to go. The the exact land he prepared for them. And that's not a surprise if you've began reading your Bible at the beginning. Because from the very beginning, with the Garden of Eden in Genesis 1 and 2, God's, God's plan. God's eternal purpose has has not just been to have a people, but to to plant and locate his people in a particular place, in his place. And God's ways haven't changed, friends. What what, what does Jesus himself say he's doing right now until the day he returns? John 14, 3. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, to my place, that where I am, you may be also. So so the land of Canaan, this specific geographic place, is a type. It's a symbolic gift that that anticipates, that, that points forward to the greater dwelling place of the new heavens and the new earth. And it's worth lingering here because the longing that so many human beings, Christian and non-Christian alike, feel in their heart, deep within them, for a sense of place is not an accident. Why, why, Why do, if you're in business, why do road warriors 
get weary? Or why do homeless people get discouraged? Because God hardwired us with a longing for home. He made you that way. It's, it's why a, a peaceful home is such a blessing. If you have one, it administers to the soul, right? Not just to the body. And it's why membership in the local church is such a blessing. I mean, think about this, right? God didn't leave Israel homeless. And he hasn't left you homeless, Christian, ever. Okay, He adds us to his body. (laughs) He places the solitary in families. For for you to, think of it this way, for you to abandon the local church Christian is for you to say to God, I'd rather sleep in my car. The church isn't a building, in other words. It's a Christian's place. It's your home brothers and sisters, because it's God's place. This is his place. As Jesus says in Matthew 18, 20, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. When God draws his people to himself, here's the point, he always points them toward a place. And in Israel's case, it wasn't just, you know, any old land. Look at verse 8. It was the very land the Lord had promised to give to their fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, and to their offspring after them. If you're not familiar with the story, what did did the Lord promise to Abraham? Genesis 15, 18. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham saying, to your offspring, I give this land. From the river of Egypt to to the great river, the river Euphrates. And he made the same promise to to Abraham's son Isaac, to his grandson Jacob, Genesis 28, 13. I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac, the land, Jacob, on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. So So you have this promise of a dwelling place for the people of God, where they could enjoy the blessing of life in God's presence. That, that's one of the most important promises God makes his people in the old covenant. And it's a promise he fulfilled in part in the book of Joshua when he leads his people into the actual physical land of Canaan. But it's also a promise that illustrates, I want to think about this with you, the way that God brings so many of his promises to pass in our life. How does this land promise illustrate that. Well, we'll look carefully at verse 8. This is really important for the Christian. When it comes to the land, does God say that he will give it to Israel or that Israel has to go in and take possession of the land? Which one is it? It's yes right? It's both. Both are completely true. The the image of God, what's the word Moses uses? Setting the land before them reminds Israel that it's been his all along. 
His to possess, his, his to distribute according to his good pleasure because he created it. And so if they receive it, it will be because God sovereignly determined to bestow it. He's in complete control. Israel isn't resting this blessing, you know, grabbing it away from a reluctant God. The Lord is keeping his promises by giving them the way. And at the very same time, here's the both, okay? What does the command to go and take possession tell us? That God accomplishes his sovereign will through your obedience. Through faith that says, Lord, because we trust your promises, we will do what you have commanded us to do. I'm not talking about God doing his half and us doing our half, okay? As if God is partially sovereign and we are partially responsible. No, do not think that. God is fully sovereign and we are fully responsible. I love how Pastor John Piper grabs all that, and he says, how, does the pro- how do the promises of God come to pass? We act the miracle. It's a great picture. If, if you want, in other words, to experience the fulfillment of God's promises in your life, friend, you have to respond to them with obedient trust. It's always been God's way. How, how does, examples, how does God provide for our physical needs, by and large? Well, by enabling you or someone else to work and earn a paycheck, right? How does God provide for our spiritual needs? On so many fronts, it's through Christians that are, that are diligent to tell us about Jesus and urge us to trust and follow him. How does God sovereignly raise up another generation of saints that will keep gathering and declaring the gospel after all of us in this room are dead? How does he do that? Well, through parents who do the hard work of discipling their kids. So if you long to be married, should you trust him and wait for a spouse? Or should you intentionally pursue friendship with godly members of the opposite sex? Yes. Both, right? You get it? Or or how... If you want to grow Christian in personal holiness, godliness, how's that going to go down? Do, do you pray and ask for God to give you a desire, a feeling in your heart to repent, to turn away from sin and obey the Lord? Do you do that? Yeah. Yeah, but you know what else we do? We submit to God's word regardless of what we feel. Trusting that as we honor him in our actions, our feelings will follow? The answer is yes, both. And that, and that principle in verse 8 just carries forward throughout all God's dealings with his people up to today. Paul puts it this way in Philippians 2.12, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. I love how Paul also says this in 1 Timothy 4.10, 
For to this end, we toil and strive. That's not passive. But why do we do that? Because we have our hopes set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. So here's the point. Do not denigrate God's sovereignty by undermining the importance of your obedience. And do not assign a sovereign power to your obedience as if you were God and God is not. What do we do instead? We trust his promises and we obey his word as God's sovereign means of fulfilling his promises. Experiencing the fulfillment of God's promises requires something, friend. It's called obedient trust. That's the first lesson. Here's the the second. Here's the second. All of our present needs arise in the context of God's faithfulness. Think about this. At first glance, by the time you get to verse 9, it can seem like you got an apple in a box of oranges. You know, we're kind of gearing up for, okay, God's, remember 38 years ago, God called us to enter the land. Here's what it looks like. All right, Israel, one, two, three, let. Actually, no, we need to talk about leadership delegation. <laughs> well, I, okay, well, that's great, Moses, but like here, now, what? Did you, you know, take a break and then come back to writing Deuteronomy? It's, it could just seem out of place. Guys, Moses hasn't lost this train of thought here. He's doing something very intentional. He's helping Israel trust God to fulfill the land promise by reminding them of another promise God already fulfilled. What's that? The promise to give them offspring. Genesis 15 verse 5. And he brought Abraham outside and the Lord said to him, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And Abraham believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Don't don't you love that line, if you were able to number them? I was just thinking about that this week. What what a picture that is of of the unimaginable greatness of God's goodness. Good luck, Abraham, trying to plumb the depths of my steadfast love. It took 400 years for God to bring that promise to pass. If you didn't know that. Not because he's slow to fulfill his promises, but because he's perfect in wisdom. And he didn't do it in the way I think any of us would have chosen. He did it through generation after generation after generation after generation of oppressive slavery in Egypt. Exodus 1 verse 12. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. And the more they spread abroad. Think, think about that. That's always been God's way, hasn't it? Always been his way. He, he does his best work through tears of sorrow. It's the way of the cross. 
And so as Moses stands on the plain of Moab, 38 years, 40 years after that, surrounded by several million Israelites, what what does he perceive as he's going historical? He, He recognizes that that leadership challenge he faced and Israel faced 38 years ago was a direct result of God's faithfulness to them. He did exactly what he said he would do. Look at verse 10, Deuteronomy 1. The Lord your God has multiplied you, and behold, today you are as numerous as the stars of heaven. He didn't just pull that out of thin air. He knew the promise. He connected the dots. Yes, Israel, 38 years ago, I had limitations. I've still got leadership limitations. But listen, that moment in our history was not primarily about my limitations. It was about the goodness of the Lord, the faithfulness of God, because he gave you abundant offspring, just as he said. And so Israel, you can trust his promise to give you the land too. That's the connection. So Delegating leadership responsibility was the immediate need. But it was what I like to call a good problem. (laughs) A really good problem because it arose in the larger context of the faithfulness of God. And I encourage you, Christian, follow Moses' example in this regard. I'm not not talking about being positive or, or just looking on the bright side of things. I'm saying refuse to overlook the way present challenges in your life are going down or are embedded in the larger context of God's faithfulness to you. Don't overlook that. Are, are, you, are you facing problems at your job site right now in some way? You wouldn't have them apart from God blessing you with the gift of work. Are you facing challenges as a parent? Well, you wouldn't have those challenges apart from God giving you the gift of a child. Or is it it hard for you when a long-standing member of the church suddenly departs? That wouldn't be hard for you if God hadn't poured his love for his people into your heart. The context. And, and consider this, Christian. The entire story of your life is going down in the context of God's faithfulness to you in Jesus Christ. That's the context. If, if you respond to God's offer of salvation from the judgment you deserve by turning from your sins and trusting and obeying Jesus, well, then you can rest in knowing Jesus' story is your story. For, for your life is wholly bound with his. So that means you too will rise. You too will overcome. You too will be vindicated because nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Remember that, friend. All, all of our present challenges in the Christian life, all of them, go down, arise, in the context of God's faithfulness to you in Jesus. Remember that. That will change your perspective. It doesn't make our challenges go away, but boy, it gives us faith in God in the midst of them. 
And at the same time we remember that, take heart in knowing that God delights to provide for you, for our needs, for your needs, in very practical ways. He, notice, he doesn't say to Moses here, hey pal, the fact that you're overwhelmed right now is actually a signpost to my goodness, so could you just shut up, quit complaining, and praise the Lord? Well, it was a signpost to God's goodness, right? But what does he also do? He provides help for Moses and Israel in the very same way he provides help for the people of God today. So here's the third lesson. God provides for his people through the gift of his people. He provides for his people through the gift of his people. Look at verse 12. How can I bear by myself the weight and burden of you and your strife, Moses says. It's worth noting here that caring for God's people in any capacity, okay, whether you are leading a church or discipling a brother or sister one-on-one, has always included an element of weight or burden. So I think of Paul's words, his own self-reflection after years of ministry, 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight, And apart from other things, there is the what? Daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. So, so we need to hear something here. The, the idea that bearing one another's burdens in the community of the church should be stress-free is a product of our self-love culture, not the wisdom of God. Hear that. Notice Moses does not say that the weight or the burden itself is the problem. He says it's that he's trying to bear it all by himself. So what does he tell Israel to do? Look at verse 13. Choose for your tribes wise, understanding, and experienced men, and I will appoint them as your heads. Okay, now, here's the moment. We're going to have a lot of these in Deuteronomy where we have to call time out, take a team knee, and remember where we fall in the story of redemption and in our Bibles, okay? So I, I alluded to this last week, but in short, on this side of the cross, on this side of Jesus and the work he's done, the people of God are no longer defined by physical membership in the nation state of Israel. That's really important. We're, we're defined spiritually through membership in the church of Jesus Christ, through union with him. So in the Old Covenant, Old Testament, the church and the state were one, a single entity. Under the New Covenant, they are two separate entities. So the leaders Moses appointed here had had this combination at that time of civic and religious authority that leaders in the church today don't have. So we can't map what Moses did here directly onto the church. As if, okay, 
new leadership strategy for Kingsway. We're going to break all of us into thousands and hundreds and fifties and tens. And I, I need some tens. So who want, no. Okay. But we can ask, and we really need to ask what biblical principles inform the way God provides for his people all the time. Okay. But both in Israel before Jesus arrived and in the church today after Jesus rose. So let me mention briefly three of them, okay, before we keep going through this text. First, leadership is plural. God's design leadership is plural. Plurality in Christian ministry, not leadership by one, but leadership by a group, has always been God's design. I think as Americans, we're, we're often drawn to celebrity pastors. We really are. We, we love larger-than-life heroes. But God's best work, friends, more often than not, gets done through faithful teams. It's, it's why you won't find solo pastors in the New Testament, if you didn't know that. Whenever Scripture describes elders who pastor, that word elder is almost always plural. It's a group. Plurality in ministry provides longevity in ministry. It's, it's what makes the sacrifice sustainable and why I am thankful to God that we have a plurality of elders in this church. And I thank God for men like Chris who's in Bolivia and Josh who's sitting on the second row and, and others the Lord is training and raising up in our midst. Leadership is plural. Okay, second, leadership is qualified. It's always qualified. Notice Moses doesn't just launch a popularity contest. This isn't like the high school court all over again, okay? He commands that all the officers and commanders he appoints have to be what? Wise, understanding, and experienced. Wise, understanding, experienced. And, and you see the same principle carried forward in the New Covenant in places like 1 Timothy 3 or Titus 1 with qualifications on a character front for elders and deacons in the church. In other words, we have to ask more than, is this person gifted? And deciding in the church today, to whom will we give significant positions of ministry, responsibility, and leadership? We have to evaluate their character, their convictions, their, their understanding of God's word, their, their ability to bring God's word to bear, their wisdom, to apply God's word in so many different situations. And it's at precisely this point that pastor elders exercising oversight in our church, no less than Moses needed back then, need all of God's people (laughs) to be involved. So think about this. As the spiritual authority God established, Moses did what? He appointed the leaders who served under him. Verse 13, he took and set them over Israel. Verse 15, he charged them, verse 16, with God-given responsibilities. But the congregation, the people, played a a critical role in that process, that selection process. And, And frankly, we do the same thing as a church today. When we gather written feedback from all our members before adding a new elder to the plurality of our team here, we we all have a role to play in ensuring that only qualified leaders, qualified leaders, 
or serving in positions of ministry responsibility. So leadership is plural, leadership is qualified. Third, leadership is male. And now I might step on some toes, but this is important to see, okay? The fact that Moses only appoints men, he's explicit about that, for positions of spiritual authority over the men and women of Israel is not a cultural artifact or a vestige of patriarchal oppression. It's not, okay? It's consistent with God's design all the way back in Genesis 1 and 2. Even before sin corrupted the world, God charged and entrusted Adam with a unique leadership responsibility. Not not to domineer over Eve, but but to care for her, to provide for her so, so she could flourish in the unique responsibility God gave her as a helper. And and you see that same principle carried forward under the new covenant. A place like 1 Timothy 2, where, where Paul reserves teaching and spiritual authority roles in the church for qualified men. Appealing, notice, not to first century culture, but all the way back to God's creation ordinances in Genesis. He does the same thing. Now, having said that, that does not mean, please hear this, that women cannot occupy any leadership role in the church. If you think I said that, you weren't listening, (laughs) okay? Because I praise God, and I hope you join me in praising God for the essential work that sisters like Sarah and Lauren and Donna and Karen are doing, serving our body in areas like King's Kids, communications, hospitality, international missions. But this principle does mean, gentlemen, hear me on this, that that God has entrusted you in the home, in the church, with a holy responsibility to set the tone spiritually, to lead by example. And I, I linger here because It's a sad fact that in so many churches, in so many families, the women present are more godly, more engaged, more faithful, more passionate, more knowledgeable of their Bibles than so many of the men. May that not be in this church, guys. May the way we lead in our homes and in the church always spur our sisters onward toward godliness. So those those leadership principles are important. We do well to notice them. But but don't miss the bigger picture here, okay? What's the bigger picture? The people of God had a need. So how did the Lord provide for their need? They had a need. How did he provide? Well, he did it through members of their own body. He provided for his people through the gift of of his people. And and the same pattern continues in the church today. So let me give you an example of this, okay? Think carefully here with me. Are the guidelines Moses lays out, look at verse 16 and 17, are the guidelines he lays out here for rendering righteous judgments, 
Are they applicable to men and women who serve in our legal system or on a jury today, for example? Like be impartial or don't fear man or insist on equal treatment under the law or protect the vulnerable or remember God's authority stands behind your own. Are those applicable to men and women in, in contexts like that? Or if you work in forensic science like our brother Josh does, absolutely, right? But, but there's another application the scripture itself makes as we move from the Old Testament, Old Covenant to the New, because under the New Covenant, responsibility for judging the people of God, for evaluating our conduct according to God's word, maintaining the boundaries of our corporate holiness. That, that isn't reserved for just a few, like it was then. That responsibility is given to every member of the body of Christ. That's a big change, okay? How do we know that? Well, in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul rebukes the entire church in Corinth for tolerating sexual immorality in their midst, unrepentant sexual sin in their midst. Why was that a big deal? Because through that one member, what they were doing, disobeying the word of God, that member was compromising the entire church's witness testimony to the truth and power of the gospel. That's a big deal. 1 Corinthians 5.1 it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. And then Paul concludes with these sobering words a few verses later, Verse 12, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? Brothers and sisters, when you confront a wayward member of our church as an expression of the Lord's loving discipline in that person's life, as God requires in 1 Corinthians 5, or when you mediate a conflict between two members of our church, as the Lord requires in a place like 1 Corinthians 6, you, you are exercising a holy responsibility. God has given all of us to oversee our mutual profession of faith. You're doing that. Under the leadership of our elders, it's, it's our collective job our collective job, to judge one another, to lovingly discipline one another. By by doing what? Taking the righteous standards of God's word, God's commands, and holding each other accountable for following hard after Jesus, for, for living in a way that's consistent with our profession of faith. I need you to do that for me. You need me to do that for you. Judge not that you not be judged, which we hear so often, does not mean 
that God wants the church to stand idly by as a Christian drives the spiritual car of their life off a cliff. It's not true. It means we refuse to arrogantly act or speak as if we're the ultimate authority in their life. Instead, we humbly point to the righteous judgments of the one revealed in God's word to whom we will all give an account. And and with tears in our eyes, we say to that brother, that sister, friend, you cannot live that way. If you're going to follow Jesus, you cannot do that. God says so. And and, and given that collective responsibility, we really all need to hear this warning in verse 17, not just the people that work in the legal sector. You shall not be intimidated by anyone, for the judgment is God's. God knows how much of our failure to lovingly confront one another, to correct one another, our silence is really fear of man hiding behind, well, I don't want to offend them. Or I don't want to lose the relationship. God knows that. And so if you're a church member or if you're a parent, or if you're a spouse, or a friend, or an employer, or an employee, or a ministry leader, I think I may have managed to capture everybody in this room with that list. Okay, then I, then I charge you, on the authority of God's word, do not revere the opinions of men. Don't play favorites. Fear the Lord. Stand in awe of him. Be more concerned about the prospect of displeasing him than you are the prospect of displeasing men. Speak the truth in love. Always. Okay? Your your holy calling, Christian, is not to make everyone happy. Your job is to be an ambassador for Christ and to boldly contend for righteousness, especially in the church. Because God provides for his people through the gift of his people. And that that gift certainly includes the leaders that we need. I mean, this is worth parking on for just a second. I thank God. You should thank God. We should thank God for the leaders he's raised up in our midst. I mean, for, for my fellow elders, right? For for our community group leaders, for ministry team leaders, for so many others, men and women alike. But but the Lord's provision for our church ultimately includes every member of this body. Every single member. Because God calls all of us, not just some of us, not just the pastors, to to maintain, to protect, to, to guard the purity of our witness to the world. Our church covenant says it this way. We will diligently encourage, exhort, and admonish one another in a spirit of gentleness and meekness in our battle against sin. May we do that impartially, friends. 
May we do that courageously. May, may we do that by appealing to God's perfect judgments revealed in the pages of his word. I love in verse 18 how Moses concludes this section by instructing the entire nation to order their life according to God's commands. That's what we're doing when we hold each other accountable in this way, when we biblically judge one another in this way. We, we have, in our culture, so tagged judgment language with condemnation language that we don't even want to touch it with a 10-foot pole, right? But that's not biblical because it's our holy privilege collectively to hold each other accountable, to, to maintain the boundaries of our corporate purity so that when the world looks at the church, they would see Jesus. There's a lot of things that we learn from the beginning of Moses' sermon. This is just the beginning <laughs> on the plains of Moab as he's, he's going historical. We, we learn that experiencing God's provision requires obedient trust. That, that all of our needs, just like Israel's, they arise in this context of God's faithfulness. And in the midst of those needs, how's God provide for his people? Well, he does it through the gift of his people. So I exhort you, King's Way, may, may the Lord's faithfulness to us in the past, faithfulness to his people in the past. May may that compel, may that empower you toward obedient trust in the present and in the future. That's why history isn't optional for the Christian. History is a delightful necessity because Israel's history declares the faithfulness of God. Your history declares the faithfulness of God. May their story, your story, And ultimately, Jesus' story. Assure your heart that God is worthy of your trust. Always. And steal your resolve to obey him, come what may. Because this we know, church, if you are following Jesus, the best is yet to come. Amen? Let's pray, and we'll sing a song asking for the Lord's help to be faithful to him.